2: Hey, welcome to the show. So happy you're tuning into Dose of Leadership. You know, at a time when the integrity of our leaders in government and business, law enforcement, even our religious institutions have been questioned, I think with unprecedented frequency, it's never been more urgent that we understand the principles of value-based performance, of value-based leadership. Today's guest is the former head of counterintelligence with the FBI, Frank Figluzzi. And he has had the unique opportunity to study patterns of conduct among high-achieving individuals as well as the errors made by unethical people. He came to understand that maintaining a quote-unquote code of excellence is the key to success in any field, and I couldn't agree more. And prior to this counterintelligence post, Figluzi was the keeper of the code, if you will, and was appointed chief inspector by then at the time, Director Robert Mueller, and he was charged with overseeing sensitive internal inquiries, shooting reviews, performance audits, And he ensured that each employee met the Bureau's exacting standards. So drawing on this distinguished career, he wrote a book, and I think it came out at a perfect time. And it reveals how the FBI has achieved its extraordinary track record of excellence, from training of new recruits to the rigorous maintenance standards up and down the organization. And I think it came out at a great time because I had a fairly tarnished image of the FBI and what's great about this book and what's great about Frank is that he's unafraid to identify kind of the FBI execs who screwed up, who erred, including James Comey and Peter Strzok. And those two guys really did some damage to the FBI. And the good news is he cites them as exceptions that prove the rules. So it was refreshing for me to read this book, to have Frank on the show, because it gave me faith and confidence in the FBI again. And man, we do need that. We need some confidence and some faith in, in these institutions that we hold, at least I do, hold sacred. Look, all good codes of conduct have one common trait. They reflect the core values of an organization. And what I appreciate about Frank is that he has condensed the Bureau's process of preserving the protocols and what he calls the seven C's. And we talk a little bit about some of these seven C's in, in the conversation. But the seven C's that he cites in his book are code, conservancy, clarity, consequences, compassion, credibility, and consistency. And I really appreciated the compassion chapter. We talk about that quite a bit. It's a great book. Um, it gives you a lot of detail. Of course, I appreciate that kind of inside scoop about the FBI and those agencies. I've always been a fan of the FBI. And again, I really appreciated that it coming out at this critical time. Now, we recorded this conversation before the inaug- inauguration after the riot on Capitol Hill, so that kind of gives you the time frame. since then we've had a peaceful inauguration, and things are kind of going on the way. So just a little context that when we recorded this, it was in between the riots and the inauguration. But it's a great great conversation, and I was so appreciative of Frank coming on the show. and this show was brought to you by my sponsor Hutton, who designs, builds and services commercial construction projects all throughout the Midwest. They're longtime fans of this show, and they're committed to the highest standards in leadership. You know, Hutton is behind so many projects, stunning structures built from the ground up, remodeled hospitals, medical offices, manufacturing and industrial facilities, municipal buildings and financial institutions, churches, schools. You know, they're both architects and builders, because increasingly, that's what you want as a client, right? A single trusted partner to work with from start to finish. They get that at Hutton. It's their vision delivered from paper to structure. And it's more than a construction project for them. It's a creative endeavor. And they always put people over projects. I always appreciate that about them. Always. Always that goes for how they treat their clients, how they treat their employees, their community, character counts for them. That's how they select their staff, their subcontractors, how they serve their community. It's not lip service. I know them personally. They're professional, hardworking, charitable, Midwestern, in all the best ways. That's their culture, which is really no culture at all. It's who they are. It's Hutton. So go check them out at huttonbuilds.com/togetherwebuild. slash That's huttonbuilds.com/togetherwebuild. All right, thanks for tuning into the show. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate and review. It does wonders. Your word of mouth and you subscribing and writing a hopefully a five-star review on apple Podcasts or spotify it keeps me front and center and in the top 20 business podcast and management section so i really appreciate your support and reach out to me at richarddosoleadership.com let me know where you're at in your leadership journey all right let's get on with this conversation with frank figluzzi here on dose of leadership well frank what an honor to have you on the show welcome to dose of leadership
1: I'm glad we could get this in on what has been a heck of a week for this country.
2: <laughs> yeah, a heck of a week for this country. heck of a week for you with the book launch. Congratulations with the book launch. I know you're making the press tour, and I'm I'm honored that this is your last stop for the day. Hopefully, this will be your favorite stop of the day. So it's it's all downhill you know, from
1: You uh, I've got mixed feelings on this. It's exciting to have a book released. But one of the reasons the book is getting so much traction and, and climbing so high on the various lists, is because we're in the middle of a national crisis yeah. that involves leadership, values, and the FBI, and here we yeah, are. And
2: here we are. You know, I gotta, I gotta congratulate you for for getting this book out at this appropriate time. I didn't know what to expect when I read it. Uh, I always, you know, being a prior marine who values institutions, traditions, um, ethics, values, core values, all that stuff. It was nice to. to and I think this is one of the reasons why you wrote it, because the FBI has taken a heck of a beating in the press over the past few years. And it was nice to get some inside baseball from you, from someone who was there for so long, someone who who's a, a true patriot, who's passionate about where you came from. And I appreciate how you just kind of gave us the inside baseball and set it straight. So so thank you for, for doing that. It gave me um, a, a little more sense of... Uh, things aren't as bad as what the media kind of portrays sometimes. That's kind of my take on it. So thank you for for taking
1: the, the time to do this. So I don't
2: know if that's the main reason why you did it, but I think that's one of the reasons, right?
1: Well, this was my, in a sense, this was my response to attacks on a critical institution that I devoted 25 years of my life to, retiring as assistant director for counterintelligence. So my counter to what some of the public has perceived, largely, as you said, because of inaccurate reporting in the media, is to say, look, not only is it not quite what you may think, but it is a model of values-based leadership. It gets it right most of the time, especially when the stakes are the highest and its track record of success is far better than almost any Fortune 100 company. So why don't we take a look inside the Bureau, where I was for 25 years, where I was in charge sometimes of the internal affairs functions, and let me tell you how they do values-based leadership. You don't have to spend 25 years inside (laughs) the FBI. I've distilled it down to what I call the seven C's, and I've called the book The FBI Way.
2: Yeah, no, it was great, and I really appreciate, too, how you even, you hold no, you're, you're straight and up front, you know, because Comey got a lot of attention, Strzok got a lot of attention, with Lisa Page, uh, Matthew McCabe got a lot of uh, attention, and you deal with those directly in the book, and I truly truly appreciate you doing that. You, you know, you, you called Comey out for like, hey, look, you know, I suppose it was probably well-intentioned, but he did some screwed up things here, and, and I appreciate you laying it out in the book like that, so, so thank you for, for laying it out authentically and uh, straight straight shooting as, as it can be.
1: It wouldn't be an honest book if I didn't deal with the screw ups at the FBI. And that's not to say that the president himself was responsible for serious damage to the institution. But look, part of being a credible leader is looking inward yep. and an organization yep. better look at itself. And so while Comey is a man of the highest integrity and intentions, he is flawed and and he's done damage because he handed the FBI a, uh, he handed the direct excuse me he handed the president a reason to fire him he handed the public a reason to doubt the credibility yeah. of the FBI and by that i specifically mean that infamous press conference that he called and where he said quote no reasonable prosecutor would prosecute hillary clinton yeah right he's not a prosecutor he used yeah, right. to be He's the FBI guy. They don't prosecute. They don't make those decisions. So, And then, as as you know famously, he later said, we have to reopen the case on Hillary. We found new emails. And then on the eve of the election in 2016, he says, oh, by the way, never mind. We didn't find anything new in the new email. So he immediately politicized the FBI. Did he realize that was happening? Probably not. Should he have realized it was going to happen? Yeah. And it
2: just kind of shows... Uh, to me, a leadership lesson on that is, is you know, unfortunately, perception is reality. And it's an unfortunate fortunate fact of life and leadership. And when you're in those, particularly one of the high, highest levels, the spotlight is huge on you, right? And so, man, you've got to be maniacally aware of how things are going to be perceived, right? And um, so maybe you're going into it with the best of intentions. The perception is reality thing kind of overshadows that and then starts to put seeds of doubt into people. Then it leads to the whole talk of conspiracy and everything and you know and it's i've come to find um particularly and we can we can talk about this and maybe how it's gotten so out of control is like you know when things get perceived the wrong way and particularly with the social media cults and everything else man it just fuels the fire and i think that's what we've seen you know kind of the craziness over the last week right i mean you stroke the seeds of doubt and just like, you know, maybe even Trump, with the best of intentions, maybe, in his mind, he be- maybe he truly believes what he believes. But man, words have consequences. You got to realize the, per- the the amount of influence that you have and the perception of things can be taken and it can lead to things. That's how my take on it and what happened last week. I don't know what your take is on it. But I mean, just that inability or that awareness of how much influence you have, um, it seems... I don't even know what the right word is for it. It's, it's, it's irresponsible,
1: right? Well, I think you've hit on one of the major themes in the book. As I said, the the chapters are broken down into seven C's of values-based leadership. Comey kind of forgot some of those. And and mm-hmm. you mentioned the ability to see three or four steps down the road, understand the gravity of your decision and look in the FBI, they're under severe stress every single day And anything they do that's wrong gets front page attention. Yeah. You could prove last, You can enact lasting damage on the public perception of the FBI so that when an agent in the field flashes his or her credentials at a member of the public and asks for help and that citizen hesitates for even a moment in the middle of a kidnap, a white collar corruption case, a terrorist investigation, then you've undermined the FBI mission. That's where I take issue. With Jim Comey and Pete Strzok for his personal and professional behavior. So, as leaders, we got we got to be aware of that situational awareness. And one of the, the I wrap up the book with the the last C in the book is consistency. Here, here's where this applies to what's going on right now in the yeah. country. A lot of people feel we are in unprecedented crisis and stress, and and maybe we are, although I'll point out that this country has survived civil war, presidential assassinations, presidential impeachments, Vietnam War protests, et cetera, et cetera, and we've lived through it and survived. But nonetheless, there's a natural human human tendency, and a tendency by leaders, a tendency by an organization, and even a nation— to throw up your hands under unprecedented stress and say the normal rules don't apply, right? And here's what, that's what Jim Comey did. The normal rules of the FBI not making prosecutive announcements, because that's the job of prosecutors, right? Mm -hmm. Somehow under stress and pressure, we throw those away. The nation has got to cling to its core values right now, cling to what's most important right now, not abandon them as some people have done, those people who breached security at the Capitol are playing with different code, different values than we have. So, the message at the end of the book is consistency and, and, and defeating threats to your values is how you get through a crisis as a leader, as a citizen, as a nation. Hey, we're about halfway
2: through the conversation, and I wanted to take the time to introduce you to Ben Hutton, the sponsor of today's episode. Ben, tell our listeners what Hutton is all about.
0: Hey, thanks, Richard. You know, we're a huge dose of leadership fans here at Hutton, so I appreciate the opportunity to sponsor your your program and be with you here today. You know, Hutton is a commercial architecture and construction firm headquartered in Kansas, but we do work really throughout the Midwest designing and building things like hospitals, office buildings, schools, industrial and manufacturing facilities. But really, uh, more than that, we see ourselves as leaders in the communities that we serve.
2: Yeah, that's one thing I've always appreciated about you knowing you all these years. I love your intention around leadership and your vision as a company. So what do you think makes Hutton different?
0: Sure. You know, Richard, our purpose is to build life into our employees' dreams, clients' visions, and communities' future. We really start with putting our people first, and then we keep people at the center of everything that we do, which really means we walk alongside of our clients from the very first thoughts they have about a building all the way through completion and then maintenance into the future.
2: I love it. I'm, that's what I'm glad that you're a sponsor of this show, Ben. So great. How can people learn more about your company?
0: Yeah, so to learn just a little bit more about us, you could go to huttonbuilds.com slash togetherwebuild. Great, Ben. Thanks for being a sponsor.
2: Yeah, well said. And I and I had put an asterisk by that last C of consistency because I and I think it's a great one to sum up the book with because it is inconsistency breeds fear and uncertainty, right? I mean, even at the smallest level, is if you don't if you're working at an organization and you don't know what type of boss is going to show up. One day he's a, a a raving lunatic, the other day he's the most gregarious fun-loving person. Yeah. That inconsistency makes people hunker down, clam up, tighten up and you're to your point at a larger level, the consistency if, and, and that, when we talked about this in the pre-recording before we started recording to me when I look at your book The FBI Way, it highlights the vacuum of shared values and competence that, that we have as a whole as a nation right? Somewhere along the way we've lost or there's been this slow fade from these shared values and this competence. I don't know how we got there I mean we could spend a whole another podcast talking about how that's degenerated or denigrated, I don't know what the right word is, but that's why I appreciate your book, because you're reminding us of institutions like the FBI, and that's why I gravitate towards the Marine Corps, because the Marine Corps is always, you know, they, they, they just like the FBI, they drummed it in me maniacally about these shared values, so that when those gray situations happen, not the black and white situations, like, oh, what do we do here? I'm in the gray, which is what leadership lives in, Right. If I have those shared values and that competence and like your seven C's, if I know what the code, conservancy, clarity, consequences, compassion, credibility, and consistency are of my organization, now I've got a litmus test where I can take that gray decision area, right? And that's what drives me. That gets me through the morass. I'm just summing up kind of what I heard you say there. How does that resonate with you, what you heard me say?
1: Yeah, I think, look, I'm I'm talking to a former Marine Corps officer, so I don't need to tell you about the values of consistency Mm -hmm. and a steady battle rhythm in your daily life. Mm -hmm. People think that means you're rigid or somehow Mm -hmm. inflexible, but Actually, the opposite is true. It's that kind of sticking to the battle rhythm consistently that allows you to deal with just about everything successfully because you don't wildly wander around to find an answer. You stick to what got you there and those values. You know, conservancy is another thing. Conservancy is the second chapter Mm -hmm. in the books, the second C what does conservancy mean? It simply means that preserving values and getting it right is a team sport. Yeah. it's a it's a collective effort. And those people who breached security at the Capitol, man, they are not the conservators of our democratic values. They've lost their way. And I and I think we all have to understand that preserving values isn't someone else's job. The Marines teach this. But you walk into major Fortune 100 companies today and ask somebody, an employee you encounter, hey, who's responsible in this company for preserving the core values? (laughs) And they'll often point down the hall to, oh, we've got an ethics office or we've got an audit staff. The answer in the FBI is me. I'm responsible collectively for being a conservator of the core values. And it works because they, the FBI starts ingraining those core values at day one at the FBI Academy, yeah. just as Marine Corps does. Mm-hmm. And you start snapping in and getting that you're accountable for the greater good of the institution.
2: Yeah, well said. I, I don't know. Yeah, I've certainly seen that even in the 16 years I was in the corporate arena. You're right. There's this and even I had a, my earlier guest on. We were talking a little bit about this. Patrick Lincioni was on and we were talking a little bit about this about, and I look at my, my oldest kid's 23 and my young, I got four kids and my youngest is 17. And they hear me talk about some of the things you're talking about. Like, look, we, you know, we're accountable. Like my point is, is you look at an organization, just a standard business, people don't realize how much influence they have over the brand and, and over the culture, right? The, the middle and below in any organization. And you get this from the FBI because you're taught like you have this obligation to uphold these. But you're right. The, the vast majority of people out don't realize how much influence they have over the culture, over the organization, over their brand. And and that goes for us as citizens in, in the country, right? We don't realize how much input, impact we have. And if you doubt that you have impact of what happens, look at this, those everyday average citizens that breached the Capitol, right? That found themselves, you know, everyone's just kind of shaking their head. And the vast majority of them got caught. are like, what did I do? You know what I mean? <laughs> what have I done?
1: Well. And, and, I, and I think this, you know, you talked earlier about kind of the, the longer question of how did we get here? How did mm-hmm. we lose our way? And and I think one of the things that's happened is, you know, that employee at the corporate hallway that says it's someone else's job to enforce values. Yeah, I I, I think that's happened nationally in the sense that many people have said, you're right. Um, it's that it's that president in the Oval Office. It's my elected official in the Senate or the House they're the ones who are going to keep this going for me. Well, guess what? What if they got it wrong? What if they're only acting in their self-interest, not the national interest? What if they're giving tours of seditionists before the capital mm. is breached? You know, it's on us to get it right. This is our country. We're the conservators of it.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I it's almost like we've put too much emphasis on reliance on all our political leaders, right? I mean, we put too much, in, and I can't tell you how many times, you know, I would, and people would be losing their minds back and forth, you know, in conversations about what's going on, the, you know, the latest dumpster fire on TV, and everybody seems to be pitting against each other. And I go back to, and I go, you know what, I said, I, I don't care who's in the office. I can disagree. With I respect the office. I respect the values. That's why I never get that concerned. I hadn't been up to this point. I didn't get that concerned who was in the office because I respected the office. So I was taught in the Marine Corps. I didn't vote for Clinton. I wasn't a fan of Clinton. Most of the Marine Corps officers didn't like Clinton. But if he walked in the room, I would stand up. I'd call him sir I because I respected the office and I respected the process. And it just doesn't seem like people... They put too much emphasis on the, the person, I think. I don't know. Does that make sense? Well, oh, no,
1: I, I, I like this uh, this thread. It's disturbing, but I think you're right. Um, I, you know, I come at this through the national security lens, which means I've worked counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. I know what radicalization looks like. Right. And some of the hallmarks, some of the hallmarks of what I know this can be controversial, but I'm saying it. You know, when you look at how people get moved toward violent jihad, um, in Islam, you watch a radicalization process, and you mentioned the overemphasis on ideology and personality yeah. as opposed as opposed to the framework of the democracy concept. So, when you put your faith in a person, yes, or a personality, you're in trouble. When you start intermingling religious belief and political ideology. Mm-hmm the only way to righteously look at politics and everyone else is an infidel of sorts, evil of sorts, you now have demonized the other side. And both. by the way, I've seen this on both sides of the political aisle. We're also seeing a phenomenon, not only where religion is intermingled with politics, but where politics has replaced religion yes. in some people's lives. Yeah. And now you've lost your foundational base completely.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think even one thing that really took me back from last week was we're doing this for Trump. Again, I'm a conservative guy. I've voted Republican most of my whole life. But the thing that shocked me the most about that storming the Capitol or, or the people that were the most vocal, they weren't doing it for the country. They said they were doing it for Trump. And that really upset, that really took me back. Uh I don't, again, I don't want to, I don't no, know. It was, I, I, it, it was about a
1: person and it wasn't about. Yeah. And, and, and again, um, I've said this publicly, the hallmarks of a cult are the definition of a cult is the fixation on an individual. Right. And, you know, that, that's not a way to get the core values mm. of the country uh, preserved. Um, when the individual goes South, we all go South. And so, people flying the Trump flag i mean think about what what other president has had his own f- name on a flag being flown by so many people what happened to the american flag why did mm. why why are we flying trump flags now it's we got to think about where we are and how we got here
2: yeah it it's it is upsetting and i and i go back to again the shared values and the competence piece that we've lost, I think back to my parents and their circle of friends. I've mentioned this a few times on the show, but I hearken for these days. But my parents, there were 12, 12 friends, six couples, and they met each other all when they were newly married. They started playing bridge when bridge was popular, right? That was the internet. of That was what people did. They played bridge, right?
1: Yeah. And they, they actually talked to each other while they were doing it. <laughs> right. And
2: as kids, you know, in these couples, and we would all, sometimes if we couldn't get a sitter, they just, we'd go to that house, whoever they were playing bridge at, you know, and we, and they did life together. My point is, they lived and loved each other. They're, they're almost all dead. All but one are dead now out of those 12. But so they, 1959, 1960, 60, well, that's when they all kind of met. There were Kennedy Democrats, they were Nixon Republicans, they were Jewish, they were Protestant, they were Catholic. And they would play cards and they would make fun of Nixon or they'd make fun of Kennedy. They'd make fun of, you know, them being Jewish and him being Catholic, but they loved each other. And they didn't let politics rule their, their life. The shared values piece is what brought them together, right? And I don't know how we get back to it.
1: So so you you just told a very interesting story that because I'm so uh, narrow minded in my national security (laughs) lives, I'm going to turn right into I'm going to turn right into the national security threat we're facing. Okay, And the domestic terror and insurgency threat we're facing. You just described a time in our lives when people gathered together, socialized, cared about each other's lives, got to know each other's stories personally around a table. The the insurgency that we saw at the Capitol on January 6th was largely fueled by the amplification of extremism online, in Mm -hmm. online echo chambers that we are now living in. We get our news from only one source. We hang out with people only like us. And when you're remote and never sitting around the table, never caring about someone else's kids or knowing that they have kids, but you're chatting online and posting remotely and anonymously that changes the entire dynamic dynamic and causes us not to treat each other civilly, but as demons and evil and infidels. And we grow further and further apart in our own echo chambers. And and now you've asked a question, how do we get that back? I don't know the answer, (laughs) but social media is way out ahead of us. Let me tell you something. The adversaries, the, the Russias, the Chinas, the mm-hmm. North Koreans and Irans, they've figured us out. They yeah. know we're on social media 24-7, and they're there faking us out, fabricating posts, trolling and using bots to change the how we think about each other.
2: Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate and it's scary. You're right. And I don't know. And I agree with you. I have faith, just like you said. I mean, I'm a student of history, and, and we've certainly gone through more trying times. The thing that is upsetting to me though, that it seems like something drastic is going to have to happen to collectively bring us back together, which usually equates to a lot of pain and and sacrifice. And that's what scares me a little bit, but
1: I don't know. The the scary part is uh, on any given normal year in the history of the country, you'd think that an insurrection at the Capitol to stop the democratic process <laughs> and ratification of the vote. You think that would be the, the horrible thing that would cause the wake no up. Kidding. So it has not. And in fact, as we speak, the FBI director has briefed all law enforcement in the country saying that they're picking up chat disturbing chatter that something horrible is going to happen at the inauguration. So what is it that's going to be the big thing I don't know. that wakes us up I don't if know. at all?
2: I don't know, and you know, it is it is upsetting to think, you know, what what could happen. But I don't know. I mean, I, I love the exceptionalism of this country, and sometimes even use it saying that word exceptionalism gets people rankled. But I mean, the exceptionalism of, of this great experiment is we, we are unique, and somehow that that's gotten lost. You know, and to me, I think those shared values of what made us great. As flawed as we were in the beginning, right? We're a flawed nation from the get-go. But it's a story of of constant improvement if we do it right. If we always go back to those shared shared values, that's how I see it.
1: Yeah, I you know it's my hope that in a very small way, the the seven C's of values-based leadership, if it's read by enough people, will actually help people rethink the concept of leadership and how to get back to values in in this country. Um, we need that kind of new thing and new leadership, which is actually quite it, old-fashioned. It is, just, right. It is old-fashioned.
2: We, and that's what I appreciate about you, Like I said, I didn't know what to expect. I almost kind of thought when I first said, oh, this sounds interesting, I'll reach out to you. I thought it was going to be more of a, uh, what's the right word? Self-help's not the right word I'm looking for, but more of like a tactical manual. And what I was pleasantly surprised with was how much of the inside baseball that it was about those really, it's some really cool stories. That drive those seven C's home, which I really appreciate.
1: Yeah, I, I could have I could have written a rather dry book on leadership without illustrating it with real life stories, but that would yeah. have been boring and ineffective. And I I caused I caused the FBI's pre-publication review office to release some previously classified stories that have never been told before. So I could yeah. illustrate them with meaning and drama, even from my own career. So it's a good read on that level as well.
2: My favorite C was the compassion. My favorite chapter was the compassion chapter.
1: You know what? I you are now at least the third or fourth interview <laughs> really? I've done that has said the exact same thing. And I have to tell you, that's surprising to me. I did um, I did a podcast with Chuck Rosenberg called "The Oath," and um, it's an MSNBC sponsored uh, 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 podcast. And and that's what all the feedback was was wow. I thought. I thought the FBI was this cold, heartless organization, but the chapter on compassion was pretty cool. So that's neat.
2: Yeah. Well, I never thought of it as a cold, I guess cold, I wouldn't say, but I think of it a little more rigid, you know what I mean? Or, or a kind of, um, yeah, the perception would be it's a zero defects institution for the most, you know, you would think, but that great story about the one, you know, FBI agent who was buying heroin because his wife was addicted and he was just trying, you know what I mean?
1: He was trying to get through the day with kids that needed someone alive uh, to watch them Mm -hmm. while he got called into an emergency at work. When I was the head of an adjudication disciplinary unit in the office of professional responsibility, one of my staff walked in and said, Hey, boss, heads up. We've got a case coming in where an FBI agent was proven to have purchased heroin for his wife. And I looked up and I went, well, that's the termination, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, and, And he said, I don't know. And you know, long story short, there was amazing stress in this agent's life. Mm-hmm. He snapped. He got suspended without pay for a long time, but we didn't fire him when we found out what had been going on in his life and the rehab attempts and the withdrawal symptoms and the emergencies at work. And so he was mortified and didn't come forward to the employee assistance program. So we came alongside the family with the employee assistance program for him. So he paid the price, that's consequences, one chapter, but we exercised compassion. And the point of demonstrating that is that every leader, be human and demonstrate compassion, even when you're going 100 miles an hour, even if you're in combat or you're running a bakery on the corner you've got to look at employees holistically or no one is going to adapt your core values. If your core values mean nothing but slapping you around when you violate them, then no one adapts your core values. And so it's a, it's a leadership um, story. And the other thing is I get asked, you know, about, Hey, most memorable moments in your career, what stands out? And and I got to tell you, the more distance I have from the career, the less I answer with examples of arrests, double agent operations, and, you know, takedowns of corrupt politicians. And the more I find that my memories are about where, as a leader, I had a chance to impact someone's life, to change a policy in a bureaucracy that became, that made the Bureau more compassionate, to provide in-person benefits to a family who lost an agent. That's the impact, to get someone transferred across the country to care for a a sickly parent against all known policy and protocol in the FBI. That's the, when people ask me, why do you go into leadership? You don't make a lot more money. Mm -hmm. I say it's because you impact more greatly.
2: Yeah, you're right. And I think that's what I appreciate about institutions like the FBI and the Marine Corps is they they teach you the value of of sacrifice. A lot of times I've, I've been in arguments with people, friendly debates debates a better word about that it's really not sacrifice. That well, it's like joyful discomfort, right? It's like anything worth worthwhile demands some sort of sacrifice, or or you know, and you get all the we're always chasing these buckets to fill up whatever it is. To feel validations, to feel satisfied, feel like we've made an impact, we've made a difference, and, and we usually hit it directly. But if you if you go into it like, with sacrifice, as you kind of point out in the book, I mean, all those buckets you were chasing get filled, and they get overflowingly filled, right? They get filled exponentially. And so to me, I think that's why I've, I i do not know if struggle's the right word, when I've, you know, the 18 years I've been out in the civilian sector... It's just that the Marine Corps, that 10 years I spent on active duty as an officer there, it just showed me that, look, this is just the norm, right? This joyful discomfort, this messy, grimy slog of leadership is worth it. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. You get that. I get. That's the sense I get from reading this book, that you, look, look, there are some great institutions out there. Again, this is why I think it's great that you wrote it, because, you know, I had, you know, I, I was feeling a little bummed about what was happening with the FBI. You kind of re kind of reinstated that kind of belief in me anyway.
1: Well, I, I like I like this concept of sacrifice that you've raised because the entire chapter of conservancy mm-hmm. deals in part with the issue of sacrifice. I, I talk to a lot of young people who watch a lot of TV and want to become FBI <laughs> agents because they think they're going to do crime scenes like CSI right. or they're going to be a profiler, okay. right? And I, and I sit them down and I go, let's talk, let's talk. Because the FBI is a vocation, a calling, not a nine-to-five job. And I ask them questions, and they start asking me about things things like work-life balance, right? And I start talking (laughs) to them about sacrifice and weekends and holidays and months that are lost. And so you better be ready for that kind of sacrifice. And then, of course, because it's law enforcement, I talk about the ultimate sacrifice. I talk about in the book... The fact that there are times in my field offices like Miami and Cleveland where I walked in every day and saw a building that was named after dead FBI agents who died in the line of duty. That is the ultimate sacrifice of the ultimate conservators. And so um, you have to one, one of those people happens to be somebody that I went through new training with Barry Bush. Was in my new agents class. Many years later, he got killed in a gunfight um, chasing a team of deadly bank robbers. Um, That's sacrifice, and that's what it takes in a conservancy. Sometimes,
2: well, I think it's great, Frank. I, I I know you've had a long day. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure gets across uh, about this book? About what you're hoping people get out of it? I'm highly recommending this book to all my listeners. But what is it you want to make sure that, well, that that gets out there that we haven't covered so far?
1: Yeah, I, I what what I see in this book is it's many things to many people. It's things to high level leaders. It's things to young people looking about looking at a career for public in public service. If you're running a little league team or a bakery or a a Fortune one hundred company, there are takeaways here about the fact that. Leadership that's based on values preservation is actually successful leadership. So you say if you say to yourself, I don't know, I'm not I'm not sold entirely on this concept of core values. I think it's an exercise that that companies go through. I'm here to tell you, you know what? Try it, because even if you don't really believe in it, it turns out that values based leadership gets you to excellence better than any other kind of leadership.
2: I don't think there's any other way. I think it's, I think the only way to to sustain any kind of longevity, if you want to be around in the next 10 years, next 50 years, next 100 years, you have to have value-based leadership. There's no other way. It's not, a, it's not an option to me. I think it's, it's, it's the only way to do it. I mean, you can certainly get short-term gains yeah. doing other things, but you can't have an organization like the FBI or having, you know, and I think that's what, that what, that's what makes it weather the storms. That's what's going to make, hopefully, government weather the storm or a nation government, you know, weather the storm.
1: Well, I, I, as I say in the book, if you don't have core values as an individual family or a nation, which is what we're seeing right now, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Love it. And many Americans have just done that. The message of the book is don't let love that it. happen to you.
2: And it's needed more than ever. My God, is it needed more than ever. Well, indeed good luck on the, the book and um, thank you for being a part of the dosa leadership tribe and um, I'll be with you watching uh, next week and pray for peace and calm hopefully that's what will happen hopefully uh,
1: calmer heads will prevail well thank you for being part of the the dialogue nationally thanks for having me it was a it was a great thorough uh, calm and thoughtful discussion I think we need that around the country right now. Oh, more than ever.
2: Well, congratulations. Celebrate the day, your last interview of the day or conversation. Take off that jacket and that tie, sit back and pop open a cold one. Hopefully you'll have a nice time to relax.
1: Thanks, Richard. Uh, Take care. Enjoy the evening.
2: Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers, let them know about the value that Dosa Leadership brings to your world. Go to dosaleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together, and until the meantime, make it a great one.